There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 43. Today in the show, we're joined by renowned wildlife biologist and whitetail manager, Dr. Grant Woods, to discuss how we can handle whitetail management adversity. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, and today we've got a really exceptional show in store for you guys because we're being joined by Dr. Grant Woods, the host of Growing Deer TV and really one of the foremost experts on deer and deer management. And I wanted to bring Grant onto the show to help us continue a conversation we started a few episodes back when we had Kip Adams on the podcast to discuss the current state of whitetails. And in that episode, Kip shared a number of challenges that deer and deer hunters are facing across the country. And they're challenges that I imagine many of you are dealing with right now too. So that said, now that we've identified some of these challenges, I wanted to chat with Grant about how we can deal with these issues. So in a few minutes, we're going to bring Dr. Woods on the line and I'm really excited about that because I know we're all going to learn a lot today. But, Dan, are you as excited uh, as I am about this conversation? Well, uh, he's a doctor, right? Uh, I mean, not like a doctor. That I mean, he's not like a fix, <laughs> fix my cold kind of doctor, but he's a doctor. Like, he's a deer doctor, right? He's a yes. biologist that has a doctorate, right? Yes, that is correct. And that's pretty cool because doctorates – seem to be the biggest losers on the planet, but unless you're actually a doctor, but cause I met this one guy one time and he was a doctorate of English and I just didn't get along with him that well. He always was like correcting me mm-hmm. and I'm not, you know, I'm not very good with words or writing and, or talking for the most part. So he was, <laughs> he was just correcting me the whole time. But this guy, he's a, he's a, he, he's a doctor of deer and I really like deer. So I think we're going to have a pretty good conversation with him today. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely are. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Growing Deer TV or, or what um, Grant's done, but he is just a absolute wealth of information about 
whitetails and managing for whitetails and habitat improvements and and really everything related to deer. Um, I actually got to participate. I actually got to go down to Missouri. I think three or four years ago. Um, for the QDMA's Deer Steward course. And as part of that, we got to um, actually tour Grant Woods' property down there, which was really, really cool. He's got just an unbelievable property, and uh, we got to see all the different things he's been putting in place and why he's been doing things and how he's been doing things. And uh, I think in short, I just took, if anything that I took away from that, it was that there is so much to be done when it comes right. to when it comes to deer and managing deer and, and to, and there's so much to learn. So I'm excited to spend a little extra time here with Grant learning. Uh, he's a great teacher. He's a great speaker. Um, you know, for anyone that's watched an episode of growing deer TV, um, which is Grant's web show. Uh, if you've seen that, you know that he's just uh, a terrific guy to listen to. And um, I'm thrilled that he's going to join us here on the wired hunt podcast to, to kind of share his two cents on a number of these issues. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just love learning about the science, you know, because because here we are. We're you know we may be giving tips and tricks to, to our listeners, or you may read an article about what you should do, you know, to hold bigger deer. But but then finding out the science behind it and the reasoning for those tips or tricks or you know food plots or whatnot can is is just it blows my mind, and that's the stuff I love to learn about. Yeah, yeah, you and me both. I um, I had a phone call with Grant a couple months ago, a month or two ago. Um, I was interviewing him for for a story and had some questions to him um, for him regarding kind of everything going on right now in the whitetail world. And he just had a tremendous amount of perspective and insight into so many different issues that we talked about, you know, two weeks ago with Kip when he started talking through uh, some of the kind of the state of whitetails across the country and some of the numbers that we're seeing and some of the challenges. And Grant had some really, really interesting insights. And as I was talking to him during that conversation, I just thought, you know, we, we have to get him here on to on the show to yeah. talk about some of those things. So I think, you know, I don't think there's any more that you or me need to say. I think we just need to get Grant on the line. We need to, you know, get some questions in front of him, and we need to just sit down and listen and take notes and hear what Grant has to say because I think you and me and hopefully a lot of other people listening, I think there's a lot that we can learn from Dr. Grant Woods. So what do you say we get Grant on the line? Sounds good. All right, here with us on the line is Dr. Grant Woods. Welcome to the show, Grant. Hey, thanks, Mark. Hey, we are really excited to have you on. Dan and I were just talking a couple minutes ago about the fact that we just feel like, you know, for this show this week, given what we've been talking about over the past couple weeks, you are really just the the perfect guy to give us a perspective on how to handle kind of some of these new challenges that deer and deer hunters are facing, uh, you know, in the current day and time. But before we get into this kind of really big and exciting topic, for those that maybe aren't familiar with you, Grant, can you share with us a little bit of background as to, you know, what you do today and what experiences you bring to the table? Yeah, great. Well, you know, gosh, I'm getting to be an old man. I'm 53, and I schooled here in Missouri and then University of Georgia and finished up at Clemson. And those were kind of the heydays. Deer populations were growing throughout the Whitetails range and more and more expanded hunting opportunities. And guys were just starting to buy land for for recreation or for deer hunting and of course you know that's a long ways from where we are now that's the normal stuff and and 
through that time, deer populations kept increasing until, you know, a decade or a little bit longer ago, and, and then it started decreasing in some areas, and habitat loss has certainly come to play, and a lot of predators come in. Along that way, I started trying to find ways to share information rather than one-on-one. I've been a private consultant for 25 years. We've been incorporated 25 years, and we started just using the Internet and a website, growingdeer.tv. We simply film what we're doing every week, 52 weeks out of the year, film it one week and have a show up next week. And it's hunting and hunting season or prescribed fire or trapping or, or whatever we're doing. We just share that with the public. They're usually about nine minutes long, and it's been a good project for us. Yeah, I've uh, I personally have really enjoyed what you're doing over there with Growing Deer TV, and obviously over the past you know three four years or however long it's been going, it's just grown tremendously. And everyone I've ever talked to about it has has really found it to be a helpful resource. So I think you're you're definitely taking that knowledge that you were sharing, like you mentioned, you know, one on one or with your um, with your clients, and you've been able to just bring that to it such a such a wider audience is pretty incredible. Um, so. You know, that being the case, and if, if we're talking about how do we, you know, bring some of your knowledge and your experiences to this wider audience, that's what I'm hoping to do here today, too. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we talked with Kip a few weeks ago about you know, the state of whitetails, and he mentioned a number of challenges, and he also gave us kind of a diagnosis of his own of, of what he thinks the current state of whitetails is. Um, but that was his mm-hmm. own perspective. So I'm curious to sure. kick things off, Grant. You know, could you? Could you share with us your own personal diagnosis of what you think the overall whitetail situation is across the country? And I know that's it's hard to do as there's things that are very localized, but at a high level, can you give us your two cents on, on what the situation is today across the whitetail world? Are we in a good shape, bad shape, or you know, what are your thoughts at a high level on that issue? I think we're on the tail end of being in great shape. So anytime something's taken away from any of us, we don't really like it. We've had just large, healthy deer populations for, again, about a decade or so, and just wide-open hunting opportunities. You know, some states just, guys, kill more deer than any of us need legally. And and those are being reduced through predators and through habitat loss and through over-harvest in some areas. And so state agencies have or are talking about taking away hunting opportunities, and no one likes that, myself included. And so in some areas where we're so great and where there's some honey holes out there where hunting's better than ever, and by some measures, you know, we're, we're harvesting more older bucks right now as a percentage than we ever have. Uh, our, our herds seem to have a more balanced adult sex ratio and rattling and grunt calls and hunting scrapes works in more and more areas. But on the other hand, some places there's actually more food than deer. Uh, populations are down, some states drastically down, harvest down 30, 40, 50%. In those cases, you know, we haven't lost 50% of the deer habitat in the last three or four years. So definitely some issues out there. The great thing is we do have a lot of knowledge, and I think all the issues we're facing, almost all of them, can be fixed in pretty short order if hunters and agencies are willing to take those steps. That's I like to hear that optimism, um, you know, in regards to, you know, how those issues can be fixed. Um, and I, I, I want to take some time here to dive into some of those potential solutions. Um, but I guess I'm, I guess at a high level, Grant, can you address a couple of those things? What, what do you see as the, as the largest challenges at a high level? Um, and then what do you think some of the things that we or that the agencies and hunters and other um, organizations can do to address those? Okay, at a really high level. I think agencies have to give more control of 
deer management to landowners or, or deer co-ops or, you know, whatever. Each state kind of has a different way of doing that, but to the end user is how I like to phrase it, in whatever form that end user or the hunter on the ground is. So hunters tend to see trends of deer herds declining, uh, the severity of, of disease outbreaks, tend to pick those up quicker than agencies. Agencies are usually working on one, two, three years past harvest data. And, you know, a a big state, a a really well-funded state, may have 10 or 12 people working on deer. Where in that state, there may be a half a million deer hunters. So there's a lot of eyes out there and and literally thousands of trail cameras and all kinds of stuff going on. So I think when agencies stay in a model, you know, we're going to write a 10-year deer management plan for state XYZ. And then they're committed to that plan. In the middle of that plan, there's a HD hemorrhagic disease outbreak, or coyote populations just blow up faster than anyone predicted. And the agency doesn't want to change their model. And hunters are screaming and crying, gosh, I'm not seeing near the deer I used to see, or, or whatever the case may be. There's got to be a way for the agencies to be more interactive. And I think that way is to allow landowners that collect data, harvest data, observation data, and are showing their good stewards of the resource to give them the freedom to make changes or choices along the way. So there's two ways to do that. 16 states currently have a DMAP program. That's Deer Management Assistance Program. Same, some states call it a different name, but basically it allows landowners or adjoining landowners to write a management plan. And as long as they collect data, and the, you know, the plan's within pretty reasonable bounds. The state says, okay, how many deer tags you need. So you're setting basically the harvest quota property by property. And that is the epitome or the top of deer management. That's when you have concerned landowners and hunters in an area doing what's best for a resource. And you go all the way down to the other end of that spectrum, and you have a state that says we're going to do X, Y, Z statewide. And even itty-bitty states like Delaware, just three counties in the state of Delaware, there's big differences from one side of the state to the other. And one rule just does not apply to the whole state. So agencies at the 30,000-foot level have to become more flexible and work hand-in-hand with the guys and gals on the ground to avoid this, this kind of decrease in deer herd numbers and even quality in some areas from sliding further down the slope. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, you you talked there about, you know, the, the responsibility on the side of the of the agency to to enable the the private landowner. Um something mm-hmm. that you and I had talked about maybe a month or two ago, um kind of related to the subject is you talked about the fact that more I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you had said something on the lines of the fact that today more than ever, you know, the responsibility has to shift to the landowner. Or if the landowner wants to see the types of results that we have seen over the past 10 years, more of that responsibility needs to be on the shoulders of the landowner or the individual hunter on public land or whatever it is to start taking um, some taking some uh, responsibility themselves to improving the situation or taking an active hand in managing their area Um you know, do you believe that same additional responsibility now has to stand, um, you know, with the hunters too, given these changes? Absolutely. You know, and I think this is, it's really pretty simple. You know, when, again, I'm 53. I'm, I was raised in Missouri. I currently live in Missouri. I was raised in the county that did not have a deer season, even in my lifetime. 
I live through the restoration and restocking of deer to geysers that we can even kill antlerless deer to wow, there's a lot of deer to now there's, you know, urban programs trying to harvest even more deer and crop damage. Uh, so I've kind of lived through that whole spectrum. And, but when we started, everyone was so thrilled, myself and my family included, just to see a deer. That one statewide regulation, one, bur- one buck, excuse me, per hunter, was a great management plan. No one was even using the word buck quality or age structure or conception dates or sex ratios. It was deer hunting. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what most people want, but that's not what most people want. Survey after survey tells us that today. And the rules were real simple, and the rule applied from one side of Missouri to the other side of Missouri, and everyone was pretty much happy. Public land, private land, not a lot of difference. As people have started figuring out, well, we could deer get bigger as they get older. Males produce more antlers, more inches of antler as they get older typically. We can plant food plots in forested areas and raise the nutrition level where, where deer will even grow bigger than average in a, in a totally forested area. So now the landscape is this vast array of different management goals and objectives, not county by county, but even a lot of areas, property by property. There's simply not enough resources in any state agency to address all those landowners. So in my, in my view, the best role a state can do is collect overall herd health indicators. Body weights are really easy to collect, age of harvest, check for diseases, and this is the biggie, and this is where some states don't live up to what I think they should, provide unbiased, really good information so landowners and hunters can make decisions and kind of manage their property for their goals and objectives. And in some states, it seems maybe don't want to give up that control or maybe don't know and don't want to admit they don't know or simply just, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years. By golly, we're not changing now. But those times are over. They're absolutely done. And landowners buy land, small properties, large properties, for the sole purpose of deer hunting. And they want the ability or the flexibility in the regulations to manage that deer herd for their goals and objectives. And they're not buying land just to shoot the first year and a half of a buck they see. That's just an absolute fact. You know, no one goes out and buys a big old ranch or even a small ranch and says, boy, I sure hope I shoot a spike today. That just <laughs> made my day. That just doesn't happen. And, and it's not bad. I think it's great because, you know what, healthier deer have larger antlers. That's a fact. And so some people get mad about talking about antlers. Man, I love it because I know if there's older, mature deer with you know, I'm talking realistic antlers, not something raised in a 10-acre pen that's full of steroids. So, you know, realistic, wild, free-ranging deer. Mm-hmm. Man, I love guys talking about antlers because antlers mean there are healthy fawns, there are healthy does, there's plenty of good habitat, plenty of escape cover. The stress level of that deer is down. And with all those components, a lot of non-game species are benefiting also. Songbirds, reptiles, other species. So, But we're not going to go out and say today, Hey, folks, we all need to manage for a flatwood salamander. You're just not going to gain any traction. There's a small following out there, but not much. But when we say let's have better habitat for deer, a whole bunch of species benefit. Yeah. And um, something you said there I think ties in really well with with where I wanted to take things next, and and that's the fact that – 
you know, we're, we're taking a look at how to measure the health of the herd. And you mentioned antlers are a great indicator of, of healthy deer. Um, and we also talked about, you know, moving the responsibility away from not just the agencies and everything, but we need to manage at the property level or the, the more region-specific level. So for our listeners who now are, you know, we've, we've talked all about some of the different challenges. We've talked about things that we hope will happen at a high level. But I really want to focus now on, you know, what can, what can we do on the ground to, assess, to address some of these issues? I mean, um, you know, some of the things you mentioned were over-harvest or disease outbreak or predation. Um, I guess to start, though, I'm curious, Grant, you know, how can someone assess the state or the health of their local whitetail herd? And, you know, what do they need to look at to see, you know, is my whitetail herd struggling? Do I need to be worried about these things or, or am I okay? Okay, so for any assessment to be, have value, you must have some type of baseline to compare it to. And I default, based on my professors, who at the time I thought were crazy, but in hindsight I respect them, when I was finishing my Ph.D., they asked me a question. What did the deer, hook, deer herd look like pre-European settlement? I'm thinking, well, gosh, no one was here. How do we know? You know, who, who could possibly know that? But you don't argue. You go to the library, and you dig, and you dig, and it turns out that archaeologists had, had dug up and recovered over 10, or at least I could find records, for over 10,000 pelvic girdles from Indian middens or basically Indian trash heaps. And, and the archaeologists studied these not for the deer herd's sake, but they were looking at aboriginal butchering techniques. They would find, they were trying to see if there's a pattern of deer, deer hunters at that time, Native Americans, butchered deer the same way. They were looking for rock marks or cut marks at, on different major bones to see if they're the same north, south, east, west. And deer, by their pelvic girdle, it's very different between a male and a female. You can very accurately determine the gender of a white-tailed deer by the pelvic girdle. So you got a sample size of 10,000 from Florida to North Dakota. You can kind of see that they were killing more bucks than does. You know what? They killed 50-50. Now, these are guys with addle-addles or bows or rocks or man drives or whatever. They didn't have 30-06 in Gore-Tex. They were killing a 50-50 sex ratio, almost better than any state in America right now. And then you can also get kind of a pretty good feel about the age of deer, like, you know, new or year old, pretty accurately, two to three, three, four, five, five, six, seven. So basically young, immature, you know, middle-aged, mature, and senile. And we reconstructed, or I reconstructed, the deer herd before European settlement based on all these records out of museums around America. Wow. It turns out almost 50% of the deer they're harvesting are mature or three years old and older. Almost no state in America does it now, bucks and does. And you're thinking about this, okay, you're sitting in a teepee, it's cold, mama wants some new moxins, you need some meat. You're not worried about if it stores 153 or 184. You're just trying to get one about seven feet because that's the average shot distance, literally. And so you're just going for deer. And they had no bias based on antlers or, or anything else. And, and it turned out that there was a really older age structure deer in the harvest because there were plenty older deer out there. And a balanced sex ratio, they shot the first deer they could get a hold of or trap it or any way they could acquire that meat and that leather and those tools. So we're going to call that a healthy deer herd because that's what was here before there was any unbiased selection. Unbiased selection, excuse me. And, now, and then 
the other really simple indicator, and I like, I'm, man, I'm a biologist. I love really detailed data, sending teeth off to Matson's lab and all that stuff is great for me. <laughs> but really simply, is there more deer than there's quality food in the area you hunt? Not food, but quality food. So, you know, I live in the Ozark Mountains. Man, there's more acorns than deer can eat this year. But that's not quality food. Acorns are not quality food. So is there more quality food than deer? If there is, I need to back off my harvest and allow my deer population to expand a little bit. Or are my deer browsing on, depending on where you are, like down south, sweet gum trees or up north, certain species that are really not that desirable, or are they just barely making it through? And this is as simple as a qualified biologist and, and a landowner to have a little training walking through his property, especially during the late winter, that's a stress period, or late summer, August can be a stress period, and seeing what forage species are being browsed on. And within a few minutes, you can say, well, we need to harvest some more does, or we need to back off our doe harvest a little bit. Notice I didn't say bucks, because they're a non-factor. They're not part of reproduction unit as far as giving us more fawns. One buck can service a lot of does. So it's the doe harvest we're always interested in. Everyone wants to talk bucks, but we got to talk doe harvest. Now, that's tough to quantify, but it's a good indicator. Oh, gosh, you know, my food plots are, are nibbled down to the ground. I need to harvest more deer or plant more food or do something. Or, gosh, I can't tell deer been using my food plots. There's no complaints of crop damage in the neighborhood, or if I plant trees or not being browsed off, I can allow this deer herd to expand a little bit. That system never fails, never lets you down. It's when we start trying to say we have 10.7 deer per square mile or 67.3 deer per square mile, that we start arguing because deer, wild free-ranging deer are tough to count. We can get really accurate estimates, but almost never a census on exact population count. So as I've matured in my career, I worry less and less about how many deer are per square mile and more about how much quality food there is per square mile. And this is a very simple thing for people to evaluate and keep annual records. Well, I'm noticing a lot of browse on sweet gum. i got to harvest some deer. Or, man, I'm seeing a lot of native plants that I know deer like to eat and are surviving. They're reproducing. They're making seed. The deer are not over-browsing them. I believe I could back off my doe harvest and allow there to be more deer in the area. Take that up one notch. Camera surveys are relatively simple to do. There's plenty of trail cameras out there, even if you're a small property owner working with two or three neighbors, and you can get a pretty accurate estimate of your adult sex ratio, the age structure of your bucks, and the deer per square mile. That data may or may not be necessary to manage the herd, but if you come to a challenge, well, you know, the state says or some animal rights group says whatever, now you have hard and fast data you can use. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. The last thing so, I'd like to say that doesn't lie is body weights, all averaged over time. So we know pretty much, you know, a yearling doe needs to weigh this in a hardwood forest, and it's going to weigh that plus 20 pounds in an agricultural area. Mature bucks are going to weigh this in a hardwood forest, and are going to weigh X plus in an agricultural area. And if your body weights are trending up, you probably can have some more deer out there. You're losing deer somehow, or the habitat's improving, or something's going on. If your body weights are trending down over a period of two or three years, guys, you need to figure out what's going on there. So, so I don't, I don't own property and I, I'm in no way a scientist, I guess. Mm-hmm. How, what are some specific things that a guy like myself, who the only way I can hunt is have permission on somebody else's property or public land. How, how do, mm-hmm. how would I go about knowing that a particular crop is not as abundant or a particular, like the acorns didn't drop, or there's a certain foliage that wasn't getting um, nibbled on because I, you know, over the years, I, I haven't really paid attention to it. Yeah. So again, it's just pretty simple observation skills. So you're on public land, it's managed for older age trees and there's a closed canopy. And you happen to notice that every maple limb that's on the ground after a windstorm, the bark is stripped off the next day and there's no leaves. There's too many deer. They're wiping it out as soon as it hits the ground. It's just really simple. If deer are hustling that hard to make a living, there's too many deer. And it's not just that there's not enough food. Many of the parasites that really impact deer, their life cycle is they're, they're on the vegetation, do a worm or whatever have you, and the deer eat it. And the closer they're eating to the ground, the more of those parasites they ingest. So there's a prime example. There's a, an abomasal worm or worm that's big enough you can see. And it happens to collect in the second chamber of a deer's stomach. Deer have, they don't have four stomachs like people often say. They have one stomach with four chambers. And so we know when we cut into that second chamber of the stomach, 
if there's 500 or fewer of this particular type of stomach worm, then there's probably more food than there is deer. They're just not getting a very big load of them. All deer have a few of these worms in there. Hunters just don't see them. If there's about 500 to 1,500, there's probably about the right amount of deer for the right amount of food. But if there's over 1,500, there's no magic. It's not like 1,501. But, you know, you got 1,800 or 2,500. Those deer are eating so close to the ground that they're ingesting the larvae of these particular parasites, and there's just too many deer. They're eating too close to the ground. So there's very specific measures, but most of those, as you said, need a scientist or a landowner's pretty trained in doing that. The simpler and just as accurate as I've matured way is whatever the preferred food is in your area. Maybe it's wild strawberries. Maybe it's maple limbs. Just depending on where you are. It's poison ivy in some areas, believe it or not. Poison ivy is great deer browse. And if you're walking through the woods and every poison ivy leaf is five feet high or higher on a tree and blow that to deer browse it off, you've got too many deer. And, and so everyone asks, how many too many deer? Well, in a closed canopy, you know, old growth forest, it may be 10 deer per square mile. In Iowa, where there's soybeans everywhere, it may be 150 deer per square mile. It depends on the type of habitat where you are. So my land in southern Missouri is in the middle of a big old closed canopy forest and fescue pasture. No ag anywhere around. You never see, there's no such thing as a combine or anything like that in the county I live in. No grain drills going down the road, no silos, none of that exists. But on my land, we have food plots, we lime and fertilize them, we do good work, and you know, we do some prescribed fire and stuff. And I carry about 100 deer per square mile and very healthy deer, very, very healthy deer. Anywhere else in southern Missouri, except for other private landowners who are kind of doing the same thing, 30 deer per square mile would be too many. There's just not enough food for it. So, again, you know, if, and I'm not saying do, but let's say Missouri Department of Conservation just makes a general rule for all the Ozark Mountains. Well, you cannot harvest does and blah, blah, blah. Gosh, I couldn't manage my deer herd. I'd have no legal way to kill enough deer. And that's where site-specific land management is so important. And, and the 16 states that have this DMAP program have proven this. And so many states have had DMAP for over 20 years. This is nothing new. So kind of rounding that segment out, one of my biggest frustrations with, with deer management, especially from an agency point of view, is failing to look across the border, and they always want to reinvent the wheel. Well, we've got to study this for 10 years and see what we need to do. No, you don't. There's a state that's already tried that and, and, and done that and figured out if it works or if it doesn't work and if you need to tweak it. Failing to learn from other states or other agencies is a huge, huge sin, I believe, on some agencies' part. So I'm feeling here, you know, from a from me and, and Dan on the ground or whoever's on the ground, I think the big takeaway here that I'm taking from, we've got a lot of things here, but if I had to take one or two things away from this, it sounds like basically from the standpoint, from the responsibility of, of the hunter, you know, we need to become more, you know, more observant of what's going on around us. Because, you know, to Dan's point, you know, to this point, he hasn't necessarily been paying attention to what's been browsed on or, or these different things that might be indicators. But really, given some of these things happening, giving some of those challenges, really it would be, you know, beneficial for all of us individual hunters, landowners, or public landowners, or whoever it might be, to start taking that responsibility of, you know, observing what's happening around us, starting to pay attention to things like browse and whether that might be a good thing or a bad thing and what that means for, for how we should harvest. Or, you know, taking the next step to what you 
pointed out, Grant being, you know, trying a trail camera survey. Um, you know, we need to start taking some of those things into our own hands versus just depending on our state to say, hey, kill this many deer. Because to your point, Grant, you know, what they say at the state level or even county level just might not be relevant to our individual piece. Yep. So so let's go all the way back first conversation. You know, when we first restored deer and had deer seasons, we had just restored deer. So nowhere was overpopulated. And the plants and native vegetation or crops had not been overbrowsed by deer. So there's plenty of ice cream quality native plants everywhere to restore deer, right? We've had deer restored in most areas 50-plus years now. A lot of those plants are gone. Deer populations got too high back in the 80s and 90s. They wiped them out. They are literally gone. And so hunters at first didn't have to be naturalists or observing plants or browse because they were just deer. We're just deer hunting. And of course there's food there. That's not the case anymore. The game has changed. And just like we don't use rotary dial phones, if we just go out and sit and say, boy, I sure hope a deer walks by, and everyone has that mentality, no doubt about it, deer in America are in big, big trouble. Yeah. So... So moving on, I think from that, then, you know, we've talked about how to assess if there's, you know, if your whitetail herd is healthy or if it stands where it needs to be. Uh, let's talk about some of the challenges. And then, you know, if, if we do take a look at this assessment on our property and I'm saying, okay, it looks like my population is not where it needs to be. Um, you know, there's a handful of different typical challenges that we see that might be, you know, what's causing that. So I'm curious from your standpoint, Grant, um, maybe I'll give you a couple of these different options. I'd like to hear your perspective on if this happened in your situation, how do you handle it? So let's say example number one, one of the typical things that we've seen across a lot of states over the past couple of years, especially back in 2012, was disease outbreak, outbreak, um, EHD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's say we are assessing our local herd, we see it's down, and we believe it's because of disease outbreak, um, maybe a bad hit the last summer. What, if anything, can a landowner do on their own ground or with their own behavior and hunting um, tactics? What can they do to, to help that herd um, get back to a healthy level? Yep. So at my property in 2012, we lost about a third of the standing deer crop with HD, hemorrhagic disease, which is totally different than CWD, chronic wasting disease. A lot of confusion about that still. And we do intensive camera surveys and and. and so the year HD hit, in my part of the world, we do our camera survey every August, and it didn't really hit till late August, September, so that survey didn't pick it up. And we could have naively went into that season and said, guys, we need to kill 15 deer, about deer per 100 acres or so, does, and we would have really hurt our herd because we lost, in hindsight, looking back in the next year's camera survey, we lost about a third of our herd to HD, hemorrhagic one-third, boom, gone. Wow. And, and but because we're out hunting the property and we're observant and we're watching for vultures and, you know, stuff all the time, we started picking up dead deer by creeks and ponds. And I said, whoa, this isn't good. I don't know how extensive this is. Season in Missouri goes from September 15th to January 15th. Let's don't harvest any does. We kind of get in October or so in November and kind of see where this disease is going this year. And sure enough, it was a really bad case. And we just held off the doe harvest. And then the next year had a really low-level doe harvest, and in two years we're right back up to 100 deer per square mile. So sometimes landowners may be absentee landowners, they live a state away, and they may not be able to be there watching this unfold, but someone, their neighbors are or something is, and this is where a solution this is, is deer management co-ops or neighborhood co-ops because someone's out there on the land, someone's walking their crop fields or checking a trap line or 
doing something, and they're picking up these indicators or signs that, well, this isn't right. I, I found three dead deer by the creek. That's just not normal. We need to we need to get out and watch some creeks Saturday. Everybody needs to walk a mile of the creek Saturday and see what they find. And that localized level, like in Missouri, at first the agency was saying, I'm not picking on Missouri, just have them live here. Yeah, you know, HD's not a big deal. We've been this before. And 2012 was unequivocally the worst outbreak of HD on record throughout most of Missouri. It, 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 you know, and they're talking at first, well, we had maybe 1,000 deer die or whatever. Well, shoot, I had individual clients or farms that were finding 300 deer dead on one farm. Jeez. And, you know, so it was massive. It was tens of thousands of deer across the state, literally. But the agency wasn't picking up on that like a landlord can who's out there checking his cows, checking his crops, just hiking with his family on recreational land, whatever it is. And so that responsiveness, you're finding a bunch of dead deer. You just know intuitively we got to back off the doe harvest. We don't have as many reproductive units out there as we're used to having. And if you go ahead and have HD and push for your normal doe harvest, and what happened in Missouri had a bad outbreak of HD, and that same year we had an acorn crop failure. So deer out any opening trying to find browse and very susceptible to harvest. If you hunt an acorn area, your deer herd will be driven by acorns either in the timber, hard to hunt, or out in the open if there's no acorns. That's the, dri- that's the driving factor of harvest above and beyond everything else. That's the harvest factor. And if you're not in tune to that, which the agency really wanted no way to predict it, so we had a big harvest on top of a big outbreak because all the deer that were still alive and remaining were out in the middle of pasture or bean field or something trying to find something to eat. And so they probably overshot their harvest, and it's going to take an extra two, a year or two longer for some landowners to recover that deer herd. So, again, just being tuned in. And you hear this over and over, and everyone wants a more, you know, an answer. Well, I need to push this button on my computer or do this camera survey. But being tuned in and knowing that local deer herd, and maybe not you as sole responsibility, but the neighborhood deer co-op or what you have going on. I'm a huge fan of, of neighborhood deer co-ops because you got so many eyes and ears watching for advanced predator action or poaching or whatever's going on. And it's just co-ops of the true word of co-op, of volunteering, no money changing hands, just a neighborhood co-op is an extremely powerful tool, extremely powerful tool. On disease outbreaks, yeah, you got to be keyed into it. The disease CWD is a real sleeper. It doesn't expose itself like HD. You know, everything's fine. A month later, you're finding a dead deer, and you know you got a problem. CWD is slow-acting. Deer can carry it for three or four years before they show the symptoms or signs, and that's a whole different ball of wax. HD, there's nothing we can do about it except reduce the harvest afterwards, let the deer population build back up and go again. I have, I have a kind of a hypothetical question for you. All right, so I have money to go ahead and buy a piece of property that has never before been man, um, managed for deer. It has, it has population A, let's say. So what I do is I go in, I plant food plots, I create more cover, and I now have a property that can hold, you know, healthily hold more deer. How does how does population and disease kind of work hand in hand? I mean, is it good that I increased my property to, to or bettered my property to hold more deer, but does that higher population then cause for a higher risk of disease? No. No. Okay. So okay. again we'll go back no, no. So again, it's it's all about quality to habitat. 
and having the appropriate number of deer for that quality habitat. So no problem in ag country, you know, where there's a lot of beans but a pretty good mix of cover, holding 150, literally 200 deer per square mile, and having very healthy deer, growing a lot of Boone and Crockett's, those having twins, all that stuff. Because there's so much food in a 40-acre bean field. It would literally take thousands upon thousands, uh, hear me correctly, thousands of acres of a hardwood forest to make the same amount of food, high-quality food, as a 40-acre bean field. So more deer doesn't tell me anything. More deer in low-quality habitat, body weights are dropping. Remember, really simple thing to measure is body weights dropping. Body weights dropping below average, antler size dropping below average, number of fawns dropping below average. That's a telltale sign that that deer are distressed, not healthy, and more susceptible to parasites. We use disease a lot, but guys, there's infinitely more problems with parasites. Parasites are a huge factor, but they're microscopic, a lot of them tough to see, and, and they pretty much go unnoticed by hunters and even a lot of managers. So you've improved that property and the deer herd improves, you probably have the exact same health. I, and I said deer herd improved, it increases. So you go from just hypothetically 10 deer per square mile to 20 deer per square mile. But you doubled the quality of the property, it's all the same. There's no more stress. If you improve the property, but you keep the deer numbers down at 10 deer per square mile, you're going to grow a lot bigger deer. Or you improve the property a little, but you let the deer herd grow fourfold, even though you did some improvements, planted a couple food plots, maybe made a pond, but the deer herd has now increased fourfold, then your deer herd quality, even though you've made some improvements, is going to be a lot less. It's always relative to the herd quality and habitat quality. And again, that's on a localized level. No way to manage that from a you know, one particular place in the state. So, so follow-up question for you, Grant. This makes a lot of sense, you know, maintaining that balance with your herd and quality habitat and food sources and everything. But recently, especially after the big 2012 outbreak of HD, um, there's been a handful of companies, supplement companies, that have been advertising and marketing their products as a way to um, uh, better prepared deer to handle or to survive an outbreak like that in the future that can help deer kind of weather that storm. Is there any real scientific basis to that? I mean, it sounds like to you, to what you said earlier, if you have quality habitat, a deer will, will be possibly, you know, less susceptible. Um, is that true when it comes to supplementing a herd? You know, I, I'm not saying no unequivocally, but I am not aware of any scientific research that says you add, for example, I'll just, I don't know any of this I, I know the ad stuff, but I don't know any of Enio's products in particular, what they're adding in, but let's say, I know some of the rumors was deer need more copper, deer need more selenium. No, that's not going to solve There's no magic, one magic bullet that works. There are some areas that are low in copper, but it, we're talking parts per billion. In, in, in some areas, maybe a little low in selenium, you're not going to change that deer herd just by adding that one trace mineral, just like if you and I talk a multivitamin every day, we still eat McDonald's and lay on the couch five hours a day, we're not going to get a whole lot healthier just because we took the multivitamin. And I do not believe that any super energized food or we've got these new trace minerals, because we've got to remember, boys, here's, here's a fact, and I, I want to state this very carefully, but remember, it's always a ruthless gang of facts that murders a beautiful theory. And the ruthless facts are the periodic table is only so big. 
it doesn't get any bigger unless some scientist creates a really you know super molecule gas or something in the lab, and that has nothing to do with deer management. And 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 all those elements on the periodic table have been studied for quite some time now. I do not believe there's any brand new super combination of those elements that are going to change deer management in any form or fashion. That's not to say feed can't work, and supplemental feed has certainly been proven in scientific studies to raise body weights done appropriately, raise antler size, raise the number of fawns. It's never been proven to do that more than just good habitat can. you got to remember, the world record deer, most world record free-ranging legitimate deer were not killed with the supplemental feed or killed us in bean field. Beans, by the way, are the ideal food for a white-tailed deer. And, and so as beans have increased across the landscape more, you're seeing bigger body weights. And, and we've shown that. Mississippi State has shown that. Other agencies, are, excuse me, universities are now working on that. For summertime porch, it's just really hard to beat a soybean for whatever reason. So, But no, I don't think there is a magic food. If there was, I'd be buying a bunch of them and pouring it on my land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Um, so... I guess a question, sort of moving on here, but I imagine I already know your answer to this, but I want to just double check. Uh, you know, we, we've kind of confirmed here when it comes to handling, you know, how do we deal with the challenge of disease? It's really a matter of monitoring your situation, understanding what's happening, and then adjusting your harvest um, to correspond with that. Um, yeah, and, and we're saying, I'm going to be careful because I think when we're saying disease, what we're really saying here is HD because that's in the news and media, immunized disease you know, vectored by a little midge or biting fly. CWD is a whole different story. And when we come to, to containing or hopefully hopefully someday controlling CWD, I think it's really simple. It's unequivocally shown now that moving deer, transporting deer, is the fastest way for CWD to spread to new deer herds or across America. And so this hurts some people's feelings, uh, but we're talking about the number one national wildlife resource. More kids know white-tailed deer than bald eagles. This has been shown in study after study. The white-tailed deer is the symbol of wildlife in America, period. And, and it's hard for me to stomach that we allow a few progressive farmers, if you will, to buy and sell deer and sell semen at the risk and the very over-tangible risk of destroying the most valuable natural resource, the white-tailed deer, we have on this continent. It's hard for me to stomach that. So if I was deer czar, and I don't want to be deer czar, if there is such a thing as a deer czar, I don't want that job. I'm a field biologist. But it seems pretty simple to me. I believe I'm a strong believer in private property rights, and I really believe this. I don't have my property fence, but if you want to fence your property and there's adequate habitat, you know it's not a 10-acre cinnamon pindo. You know, there's, there's escape cover and the right number of deer and like that. I could care less. If you want, you maybe live in a neighborhood where most of the deer die young and you and your family want to chase some four and five year old deer. And really, the only way to do that is to protect those deer and allow them to get older. And you have adequate escape cover, you have X hundred acres or whatever's going on. I don't have any problem with that. I don't care if you do or don't. But the deer don't care. They don't care anything about the fence. But when you touch the deer, you collect semen, you inject chemicals into it. You're transporting that deer to another place. It's no longer a wild deer. You've now domesticated that animal, and you've taken away from every taxpayer in this nation that supports that wildlife resource. And, and I think it's very selfish for a hand, relatively to all the millions of hunters in America for a few thousand people 
to want to profit off buying, selling, and moving deer to jeopardize a resource that millions of people enjoy and pay for. I just think it's wrong. So I equate that real easy. I really don't care what you do on your land as long as you don't impact my land. There's all laws like this. My neighbors legally can't put a nuclear dump on their land. They can't even burn tires on their land because it impacts the air quality and the stream quality on my land. Why do we allow people to do stuff to deer that has a known, now known, scientifically proven impact on wild free-ranging deer? Why do we let a handful of people do that on their land? We don't let them store nuclear waste. We don't even let them burn a tire. To me, that's as cut and dry and as simple as it could possibly be. Yeah, I like your perspective a lot on that. I think it makes makes all the sense in the world. I certainly see where you're coming from, but man, that is one of those topics that does get a lot of people fired up. <laughs> oh, someone's going to call you a bunch now, yeah. But, <laughs> so the bottom line is, if, if you touch deer, you know, you know, there's all kind of universities doing great work and grad students, and I've done it. We've got GPS dollars on deer and blah, blah, blah. But you're touching deer and you're transporting deer for the sole purpose of personal gain. I think is about as dangerous as burning tires or having nuclear waste on your property. Yeah. Yeah, that just made a lot of people mad. <laughs> well, it's an important point to make, and I, I've uh, I've dabbled in sharing my opinions on that too, and gotten a lot of flack for it. But I think it's something that people really need to be thinking about. So, um, so that said, though, I, I want to before we run out of time here, I want to touch on a couple of the other popular issues that I know a lot of people are dealing with, um, and one of mm-hmm. those is predation, and this is one that a lot of people mm-hmm. like to talk about, and a lot of people are concerned about, and, and in some cases, probably rightfully so. Um, Two questions for you, Graham. Number one, mm-hmm. number one, how can you tell if predation is a challenge for your local whitetail population? And then number two, if it is, what do you do about it? Yep. Not 100% easy to tell, but, you know, two things. If your deer are so skittish you can barely see them, I mean, like, you know, you, you're a pretty good hunter and you're kind of watching your scent and you're doing stuff, and they're so alert, you, can, you just can't hardly see a deer out of stand anymore. And, you know, and you're using pretty good hunting techniques. And everywhere there's a crossroads on your property, there's four piles of coyote scat, you probably got a problem. Because coyotes eat deer unequivocally. That, you know, young deer, fawns, mature deer, they eat deer. That research is done, signed, sealed, and proven. We don't need to argue over that anymore. And so can we do something about it? If, if, and not all areas have a problem. And there's a recent study, I think, out of Wisconsin that really clearly showed that in open farmland, Coyotes don't have as big an impact on deer as they do in timber country. We looked all throughout the south, it's mainly timber country, and the southern states are really getting hammered by coyotes. And the north-central lake states up north are getting hammered by wolves and coyotes, so there's areas where it's, it's certainly a problem. And for the biologists that say, and they don't say, well, we just, guys are here, we just got to reduce our deer harvest, and this is the new norm, we got to accept it. I say, boom. And I think the data is really clear. If we look in areas of Texas or out west in the Powder River country in the western states where they raise a lot of sheep or cattle, they, it impacts their income directly. They do a really good job of holding coyote numbers down through trapping and other means. So, again, we're talking about our national resource. We're talking about something that generates billions and billions of dollars and provides millions of hours of recreation. If we get serious about controlling coyotes, we can limit their numbers. I'm not talking about wiping them out. I'm talking about balancing predator and prey populations, just being good stewards of the resource. So, yes, trapping does work. Yes, it is labor-intensive. Yes, it costs money. Yes, some landowners will do it, and some won't. The most important thing is that agencies allow 
trapping the coyotes during the fawning season because that's when we have the biggest impact on fawn survival. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. What about other predators other than coyotes? Because that's a popular one. But what about black bears um, or wolves in some of the, the Great Lakes states? Are yeah. those having as big of an impact as sometimes, you know, they're, they're big predators, so they get a lot of attention. But are they really having an impact? Yeah, you know, there's studies in some areas, certainly bears. I mean, I thought there was a study out of Pennsylvania, I think, where bears were, were counting for about 40% of the fawn population. Bears can get on that search image and really find fawns easy. Uh, here's one that people don't like to talk about. How about eagles? Man, we got more eagles now than we've had in any of our lifetime by far. And eagles certainly are fawn predators where, where there's abundant eagle populations. And, uh, I mean, eagles are great turkey predators. An eagle can fly over an open field of turkeys, and one of them's not making it out. That turkey, although it's a great bird, is not escaping a big old bald eagle cruising that field. It's just <laughs> not going to happen. So uh, we have more eagles, more hawks. Who hasn't driven down the road and saw a pile of hawks, especially in the winter, on every power pole going down the road? And they've been protected for 30-plus years. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but the reality is we have more eagles, more hawks, more bears, more mountain lions, in a lot of areas, more coyotes, certainly more wolves. We have a lot of predators out there, more than we've had in most of our lifetimes. And to say they're not an issue is just really being blind to the situation. And so what do we do? Well, we make choices every day as humans of what we favor and don't favor. 
And it seems to me that in a lot of areas we're favoring predators and ignoring the whitetail population and other game species, quail, turkey, other game species. So I think we got to find a balance between predator-prey populations that's good for mankind and then set our goals to achieving that balance. Yeah, I think something you said that's really important too, and it's something that um, I worry about sometimes because, you know, I, in addition to just being a deer hunter, I'm also a, just a, a wildlife a lover of wilderness and wildlife and animals and, and nature and all those different things. And mm-hmm. I think the important thing you said there was a balance. Um, and mm-hmm. again, this is just my two cents, but sometimes you start hearing people talking about, you know, we have to kill every single predator, destroy them all because they're killing our deer herd. And I like the fact that you made it a point to say, you know, we don't need to eradicate them, um, but we need to find that yeah. proper balance. And I think in my personal opinion, that's the right, the right way to do it too, is finding that balance. There's, there's probably a place for, for both, but finding that right balance. Yeah, it would be a lonely deer woods for me to walk out and not hear a coyote howling somewhere every now and then in a distance. That that would be a lonely deer woods for me, or see a bobcat every now and then, you know. Or or if I get to hunt those northern states, I worked a lot up by War Road, Minnesota, and boy, there's a pile of wolves up there, and probably a little too many. But you know, like hearing them howl at night or seeing a big old wolf track, that's thrilling. That is part of that wilderness experience for me. But it's just finding that balance, as in all things in life, moderation and balance and I think that's our job as mankind is to help find that balance. Because if we if man doesn't create that balance, we tend to get these big old massive swings. The preservationists, people say, don't do anything and it'll work itself out. It will work itself out, but those it will work itself out in massive swings, massive swings that I don't believe human society wants to tolerate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely the truth. And speaking of one of these changes, um, you know, we talked about the at the beginning of the episode. You mentioned you know trying to set a baseline, and you know that what the population was like, what the deer population herd was like before European settlement, and um, you know now humans obviously have made an impact, and that's changed things. One of the greatest mm-hmm. impacts happening right now, it really it's forever, ever since we've been settling North America, has been habitat. And Mm -hmm. recently, from my conversations with Kip and others, more and more people are bringing up the fact or the belief that habitat loss is making a greater impact on some of these deer declines that we've been seeing than maybe, you know, is is being given credit for. So, Grant, in the case, if it seems like we are losing whitetail habitat, I believe there was, I think Kip Adams had mentioned the fact that we've lost a total third of all the CRP ground in the Midwest over the last four or five years, I think it was. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, tremendous whitetail habitat. In these cases where we're mm-hmm. losing habitat um, for, for deer, is there anything mm-hmm. that an individual landowner or hunter on public land can do to combat that at all? Is it just merely, you know, putting more cover onto our pieces of ground? Or what can I do if I, if I hear that's an issue? What can I do about that? Yeah, you know, if you're an individual hunter on public ground, I think your best tool is the ballot box. You can vote and, and you can, uh, you know, forward and, and get behind referendums that protect wildlife habitat and streamside management zones and because good habitat is always good for clean air and clean water and many things besides seeing a big old buck out there on a frosty morning. So I think that's, again, where us as citizens find that balance. We all want to have cheap fuel and we want to have cheap food. Those are realities. And, and so there's trade-offs and there's balances. And where do we find that balance? And finding that balance is very difficult. But, you know, a loss of 40% of CRP land certainly has a huge impact on game and non-game species. But 
it's an individual landowner, and he's saying, man, I, I got a chance to make some money and pay my land here. Corn prices, they're not high now, but they were high, and I can, you know, I think it's more profitable for me to grow corn and have CRP. Who can blame that landowner for making that choice? So these are trade-offs, and, and there's not an easy, it's easier for me to solve, you know, wolves and coyotes and other things than it is that one, because I, I do work for some of those people, and you know, you're a guy, and you're, you you have land in CRP, and you're making, you know, where you are, $60, $120 an acre for CRP payment. All of a sudden, corn jumps up to $10 an acre, and even though it's marginal land, you can make more than that $100 per acre profit. you got two kids wanting to go to college, and you're trying to pay for a new John Deere combine. What are you going to do? You're going to take that land out of CRP and go corn. So that is a very, very complicated question of which I don't have an answer except that as a nation, not as an individual, as a nation in the ballot box, we need to come and decide unitedly and hopefully come to a decision, which doesn't happen a lot anymore in, in our democracy, <laughs> of what our values are. What What is, what are we willing to pay for gas? What are we willing to pay for corn? And what are those trade-offs that allow us to maintain wildlife habitat, and a very healthy, productive society. Yeah. And, and those are tough questions. Those That's are as tough as windmills. Boy, there's a, you know, it's a clean source of fuel that destroys some land, destroys some habitat, and sure knocks a lot of birds out of the air. You know, what, what's the right answer there? First, you look at windmills and go, oh, my gosh, that's a great solution to our energy crisis. And if you're the guy walking below and picking up a few eagles, you're going, well, I don't know if this is so good or not. So, you know, we, we all have to make these trade-offs. And, and that one's not an easy one to answer. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a that's a tough call. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we are we are coming up pretty close to here on time. But Dan, do you have any final questions for Grant here before we let him go? Yeah, I uh, I have a question about big bucks. Okay, every you know if I'm a landowner, um, for for me personally, I'm buying that land to manage it to hold big bucks, and so I've managed my property. I have the cover. I have the food. I have everything that is needed. From a from a scientific standpoint, is there a way to improve genetics or um, do something management-wise that will increase antler size? Okay. So first thing I'm always going to look at, and I'm going to be quick here, is food, cover, and water. And I think what you're really saying is you want to kill a big buck. Right, we've, I've done all that. Killing the big buck. Right, I've already so done, you, all done all that. You've done all that, but what you haven't told me is what the neighbors have. There needs to be a reason for that mature deer to be on your land versus the neighbor's land. It sounds selfish, but that is a reality. So yeah. if you've got soybeans and neighbors got soybeans, that's even. If you've got water and they've got water, that's even. What do you have that's better than the neighbors out of one of those three? And I always want to air on the cover side because that's where deer spend, especially mature deer, spend most of their daylight hours. It's not sexy to talk about but I'm always going to err on having the best cover in the neighborhood if I can, either sanctuary, less hunting pressure, whatever it is. Second part of your question is, no way, this has been proven by great scientific research. You're not going to change the genetics of a wild, free-ranging deer by your trigger finger. You're not going to do it. Older age structure, you can accomplish. Better food, you can accomplish. The only way we're going to change genetics with any meaningful results is by line breeding or having a pedigree, knowing who bred who for several generations and the results of that crossing of their offspring and culling the ones that we don't like and keeping the ones we do. 
I said only with the pedigree, because just calling, oh, my gosh, there's a four-point buck, I'm not shooting. You have no idea. That's his phenotype, but his genotype may be totally different due to an injury or got born late or whatever happened. So I'm going quickly here, but no. I never, ever, ever, hear me clearly, never recommend calling as a way to improve genetics in a wild Iranian deer. It cannot be done or it's not likely to be done, again, unless there's a pedigree. So you grow these monster deer in pens because they know who bred who for several generations and the results of those crossings. And there's some real famous cases where, you know, the 140-inch eight-pointer is still in 200-inch offspring year after year after year, but on most properties he'd been called as a cold buck. Wow. So I call real easy on my land. If it's four years old, it's a cold deer. I try to shoot it. If it's not four <laughs> years old, I don't care what it stores, it lives. I, I like something you said there, um, and kind of going off topic here really quickly, um, but you mentioned you're looking at age, and that's determining whether you shoot or not. With these different things happening in the whitetail world right now, is that the criteria that you would recommend most hunters use rather than antler size or things, uh, anything else like that when it comes Absolutely. to making harvest decisions? Absolutely. You know, if you're a landowner and you're savvy enough to own land and do stuff, you can get pretty good at estimating the age of a buck on the hoof. And so age will always give you better long-term results than, you know, circumference or antler spread or number of points on the side. What happens with any of those measurements is that you end up high grading over time because your best two-year-old buck or three-year-old buck or yearling buck, whatever your criteria is, is going to, you know, if you've got a three-point on the side rule, your best yearling bucks are going to have four or five points on the side, and you keep shooting the best year after year after year. We've got to remember that does carry the most part of the genetic pool of antlers, and we're not selecting them on those, but those bucks are, it's not that you're changing the genetics, but you're allowing the bucks with less inherent potential standing there to eat the food and go on. It's not breeding. It's just they're maturing into deer that weren't off to as good a start in life to start with. You want that deer that exceeded the criteria but was still the same age to live because it's showing the potential to be better. doesn't mean his genes are going to be better, but that individual deer is going to be better. And that's what we manage, individual deer. Yeah, you want to give them that chance to, to reach that potential. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, you want them to express their potential. Absolutely. So, so we've taken a lot of time out of your day, Grant. So I want to wrap things up here. Um, but one last question to kind of put a bow on this. You, we start our conversation, Grant, with you mentioning the fact that we've gone from maybe a time of really great, a great period of time for whitetails and whitetail hunters in America to maybe a slightly different time. So, um, it seems like you know from people I've talked to, we're, we're entering a slightly new normal. So, in this slightly new era of deer hunting. What is the one big takeaway message that you hope that deer hunters can kind of wrap their heads around moving forward, given these changes? Every deer hunter, every deer hunter, public land, private land, is a deer manager. When you pull that trigger, you've made a management decision. Did you improve the deer herd quality or did you decrease the deer herd quality? Without that recognition that every hunter is a manager, not the state agencies, their, their teachers or educators that give us guidelines, they hold the public trust, they collect data. But the guy pulling the trigger determines the future of that deer herd. And maybe you need to pass up deer because you've had bad disease or you've got a lot of predators or whatever the issue is. Or maybe you're in an area that needs to harvest a lot of does and reduce that number of deer based on the amount of food out there. But the realization that we can't be in consumers, simply deer hunters, and that we all have to carry a little bit of the management burden by making the choices we make 
is the key that will help us have great hunting into the future. That's awesome, Grant. I think that um, is a perfect way to wrap all this up. So for people listening today that want to learn more about what you're doing and learn more from you, um, where should they go online? Just simply go to our website, uh, growingdeer.tv, growingdeer.tv, and we're making this show every week, and all past 500 and some odd shows, 250 shows, excuse me, are on there, five years of running. And uh, so you can search on, you know, food pots or predators or whatever and find a couple of shows that fit that title. And hopefully we can just share information. It's free, no charge, uh, just like Mark's stuff here, and just hopefully you can learn something. Hopefully we can share something meaningful. Absolutely. Well, I can uh... – I can definitely say from my experiences, Grant, that uh, your resource is a tremendous one, and I've certainly learned a lot from Growing Deer TV. So for everyone listening, highly recommend checking that out. So, Grant, thank you so much for joining us here today. This has been terrific. Mark, thanks for the opportunity. Dan, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Have a great night, Grant. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, I hope you're taking notes there because Grant really shared a tremendous amount of insight, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Now, closing things out here, if you have been enjoying the podcast, as we always ask, it'd be awesome if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And I want to give a big thank you to the 193 of you who've already done so. And I thought I'd read off one of those reviews here, too. This comes from the iTunes user known as Rude-like, and they write, Mark and Dan have one of the best podcasts available. I enjoy listening to them so much that when I started, I was able to pull off six episodes a night at work. However, now I'm caught up and I find myself longing for more. These guys are real people dedicated to their lifestyle and hobby. My only complaint is that they don't do two-hour shows. Thanks, Mark and Dan, for the hours of awesome. All right, well, thank you, Rude Like, but be careful for what you ask for because we are getting ever closer to those two-hour-long shows, and uh, that might end up happening if we keep uh, trending in this direction. Now, in addition to ratings and reviews, if you haven't already done so, make sure you subscribe to the Wired On podcast on iTunes uh, with the Apple Podcast app or the Stitcher app or wherever you go to get your podcast. You want to make sure you do that so you can get all future episodes downloaded right to your phone or tablet every week. Also, we'd like to thank our partners who help make this show possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, and most importantly, thank you to all of you listening today. I hope today's show has inspired you to take on more responsibility as a deer hunter and manager, and has empowered you with the knowledge to do so. And finally, of course, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.